listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I gotta tell you something, people. Back when I was in college in the 80s at Stockton State, down there in Pomona, New Jersey, we had two bars on Thursday nights, the big party night, that had dancing. And one was Del Rado's, and one was the Stockton Pub. And you always wanted to get out on the floor to this one slow song, because you knew if you did, you saw that girl you know, that you saw in your economics class, your meal pan class. If you got on the dance floor with her to this song, you might have a chance to get her back to your dorm room. And that song was True by Spandau Ballet. And uh, the lyrics and, and just the voice, the sound of my guest's voice today was so debonair, debonair and, and suave. And, and it just, it, I have a lot of great memories. And thankful for him, I got lucky many times. And my guest is the gentleman who sang that song. And my guest is Tony Hadley. How you doing, Tony? Good to hear from you, Steve. Nice to see you, mate. Yeah, that, that's, an, that is a, that's a great introduction. That, that's worthy of a check in the post. <laughs> Thank you. It's funny though, you know, because you know, it's it's when I talk to when I talk to musicians, because they sang that song, you sang that song. That was your voice, that yeah. beautiful voice, and the sax, and just the whole sound. It was so sexy. I always wonder, do you ever think how many people like made out on the dance floor to that song because of you? Yeah, well, I meet loads of people. I mean, it's a song that when I play live. I always do it and everybody sings along and you see people hugging each other. But you meet so many people and they say, oh, that was my wedding song, that was my prom song, uh, that was the song that we made, well, hey, we're hold to. And uh, <laughs> at that point I say, I don't want to hear any more. You know? <laughs> well, what went on at home is another story, but uh, it, 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 it touched a nerve. I mean, it was, and it's kind of weird because up until that point, we were more of a kind of electro-pop band in a way. I mean, I suppose in a sense, we could have gone the way of Depeche Mode. If you listen to our very early stuff, like things like To Cut Long Story Short. Um, but then we sort of, I suppose we were always aware and uh, we always admired Bowie and the way Bowie would change his sound. And we developed this, um, Steve Norman picked up the saxophone percussion and that influenced Gary's writing and we recorded in the Bahamas so we were like, yeah, man, laid back. <laughs> and, uh, and it had an influence on that album. And um, good job it did, too, because it, we, you know, in America was number four for four weeks, which was like, thank you very much. That's wonderful. And uh, 20, uh, number one in 21 countries around the world. So it was a real game changer. It really was. Now, you sang that song. You've been, you've been singing forever. How are you acclimating in the last year to not performing because that's that's you you know you're you're tony hadley you're the man you're you're a front man the guy on stage what was it what was it like in the very beginning of not being able to get out on the road because of quarantine to where it is now for you mentally and personally um very very difficult it's it's been if i could just go back to last march we were due to go to singapore singapore got cancelled because of the covid we snuck into Japan, then to Australia, kept on thinking, at what point are we getting kicked out? Then we went to, then uh, we were due to go to Miami. We were going on a, on a big floating festival ship. I couldn't land in the UK because otherwise my daughter would have had to have been, she would have been quarantined because I would have been to obviously Australia and Japan. Um, that was considered dangerous. So I literally flew into London, flew straight to Miami, had a week on my own waited for my band 
and the last gigs we did were in America. Uh, and we got home just before the whole thing just locked down. Um, I did one other show in August uh, for in Italy, just an acoustic show. And we thought, you know, COVID was going to be over and that we were going to get back to normal and the sun was shining. Uh, but it, it wasn't to be. So it's apart from an acoustic show in Italy, it's now been a year. Uh I mean, I've done lots of online stuff, uh, lots of shout-outs, lots of songs for charities and the NHS and things like that. It's um, it, it's it's been been tricky. It's been tricky. It really has. Uh, but I, I, I thank God I've got a radio show that I do every Sunday morning, so that keeps me going. But plus, I'm always singing all the time, so I'm keeping my voice up. In fact, I've just done a, a song for a, a charity, just literally. I finished 10 minutes before we got online. So uh, so I'm keeping the chops oiled up. Our first gig's going to be June the 26th. Uh, Let's Rock Leeds. July is chock-a-block. We want to come back to America and the rest of the world, but until we know what a quarantine situation is, we can't make a decision. I mean, I've, we, me and my band have got three-year visas to the States. We were like, yeah, here we go. We're going to go to America every year. And then COVID kicked in. And you know what US customs like? They're not going to give us back that year. Not in a million years. <laughs> so, um, but we're, we're talking to promoters over in America and hoping to come back as soon as we can. Well, I've got to ask you, this, this just, you just piqued an interest in me. The three-year visa, I always just had the thought that, you know, you're in a band. You're, you're a star. You can just come over anytime you want. It doesn't work like that. You have to, like, apply to say, hey, I'm Tony Hadley. You know the song True? Everybody knows the song True. I, <laughs> right. I want to come to the States. You just can't just pop in and do a show. I tell you I tell you what happens every single time. I mean, this time we got a three-year visa to the States, so that was really good. But normally, and, and in this case as well, we have to go to the U.S. Embassy in London at 7.30 in the morning because uh, we, you want to be first in line. You stand there last time in the freezing cold. You go in. They have taken my fingerprints so many times, I can't tell you. We're lucky we know a couple of the girls in there now, so they look after us. But literally, how many times do you want my fingerprints? I'm not worried about data protection. Keep them on file so I can just come in every time. But it, 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 they, they do make it difficult, I have to say. They really do. Now, you mentioned you have a radio show. Tell me about that. Yeah, I used to do, uh, I started off doing Virgin Radio, then Absolute Radio. And, uh, and now I do BBC Three Counties, which is a regional show uh, about 40 minutes from where I live. And it's, it's just two hours of fun, 10 till 12. Uh, we play some old stuff, but we play new stuff. I talk absolute rubbish. <laughs> and, and it's great. We, have, we also have like requests coming, so we're always changing the, the uh, playlist. And then one of the greatest things that we have on there is called BBC Music Introducing. And uh, so we have a team of people that research new bands, uh, new artists, and we play their their record. And, uh, you know, and say, guys, got to check this out. New band, they're playing locally. So we're trying to help promote uh, young talent because it's difficult. It's very, very difficult to get a band or an artist away these days. So it's a, it's a good thing that the BBC do. I, I'm, I'm really into it. Now, how did you get started in music? You know, did you always know you had a good voice? 
I mean, because you know, when you're young, our voices change. Yeah. Everyone goes up. How? When did you? <laughs> when did you know? Like, what? What struck you? Was it? Did, were you watching TV and you saw a band and you said, "I want to do that," or I want to find out how you became you and a, an amazing frontman for all these years? Well, it, it sort of started in in a primary school. I went to a kind of High Church of England primary school, Clockmore Parochial. We had a couple of nuns there, Sister Constance and Sister Edna. And my, mine was, it was like a Victorian school. So for, for most people in America, they wouldn't believe the school that I went to. And we used to sing hymns every every morning. We would sing hymns. Uh, so I got into music that way. We would sing in church and, and stuff like that. Lots, lots, lots of singers like uh, get side like that. Then, uh, originally, when I went to secondary school, I went to Dame Alice Owens, which is a grammar school, I wanted to be a surgeon. I really wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I, the, the maths and the chemistry and the physics weren't really my uh, forte. So <laughs> so then my uncle had a record shop. He gave me an album, my first album, The World of David Bowie. My mum and dad bought me an old-fashioned press-button tape recorder. And I started to sing along to different records. And, um, and, and then I got into, like, Queen, Rod... Elton, Bebop Deluxe, uh, Roxy Music, Mark Bowden, Slade, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you're from Philly, Hall & Oates as well. Big influence, love Hall & Oates. And so I, I then, we used to go on holiday camps, like summer camp, yeah. uh, but as a family. And they used to have a talent show. So I used to go into the talent show and I'd win a weekend away for my family. Uh, so that's kind of how I started. And then when I was 16, we formed a band uh, myself, Steve Norman, uh, John Keeble, Gary Kemp, Michael Ellison was our first bass player. Then Richie Miller, this is like Spinal Tap, <laughs> so Richie Miller was our second bass player. And then finally Martin Kemp joined the band in 1978. We were called The Roots, Cut, Makers, Gentry, didn't have a name. Then we were Spandau Ballet. Now, what was it like starting out in the music industry right then? Because, you know, as you said now... It's so different. I try to explain to people, you know, well, first of all, and we'll talk about videos because the videos, the yeah. budgets were so huge. Now you can make one yeah. on the iPhone. And back then people bought albums. It was, to me, growing up, buying an album was an experience because you wanted liner notes, man. If there wasn't mm -hmm. lyrics, if you opened up and there wasn't lyrics, you were pissed. Like, I want the lyrics. <laughs> you couldn't go online and go Google the lyrics. You know, that was a thing. What was it like for you guys trying to get the record deal? Was there a lot of competition? And did anyone take you under their wing and help you out? Well, what happened What happened in London? I mean, London. London's always been it's a bit edgy anyway. And um, so we had the whole punk thing going on, which I loved. I absolutely loved. And, and as a, we were called the Makers at one point. We were like a Generation X power pop band. And we were getting noticed. Um but obviously not enough. We didn't get signed. And then things changed after sort of post-punk. You had all this electronic disco coming over from Germany, uh, like Dusseldorf, Kraftwerk, Ultravox, Systems of Romance, uh, Human League, um, Depeche were in Basildon, Duran Duran were in Birmingham, and here we were in London. And there was a big uh, kind of electro club scene in London, Billies and Blitz. And we, in a sense, I suppose, became the figurehead for that that whole kind of new romantic club scene. So uh, that was getting lots of attention because here's all these weird kids dressing up and having a good time, what's going on. So that attracted a lot of national press. 
And then, of course, inevitably, the record companies started sniffing around. And um, and we signed to Chrysalis in 19, 10th of October, 1980. There you go. Now, so uh, it was... Now, when you signed, did you have... I mean, were you playing originals? Were you playing covers when you got signed? What, what was your mix? Because it's so weird. You know, now there's cover bands everywhere. And back then, yeah. back in the Philly area, there was a lot of cover bands, but in Philadelphia, the metal scene was very big. And there was original metal bands, you know, bands that, you know, Bon Jovi used to come to a, a town right outside Philadelphia, different people. What, when you got signed, what was the record company expecting from you? Well, it was all that we were writing, um, uh, they're all original songs. When we started off, we were started off as, as most bands, as an R&B covers band. We, we were called The Roots. And we were doing like Silver Train, Midnight Hour, sort of standing there. Uh, we got to get out of this place. That, that kind of stuff, the stock stuff that 16-year-old kids do. And then started writing and um, and the principal writer was Gary. And uh, by the time we got to the point where record companies were interesting, uh, interested, we had all our own material. So our first album, to, uh, which was called Journeys to Glory, uh, was all original material, and our first single to cut long story short hit the number five spot in the UK, which was like, wow, that's fantastic. We didn't expect that. Uh, so so we had a fairly meteoric sort of rise to fame at the beginning, but uh, we, we paid our dues in the in the clubs and pubs around London. <laughs> we certainly did. I've heard. I've heard some horror stories. Uh, oh. <laughs> tell, me, tell, me, tell me a good horror story when you guys were younger, because I've heard stuff that just, you sit there and go, People are throwing shit. Wait a second. That's not right. Yeah, well, we I remember once we played at a place called the Double Six in Basildon. Basildon is like a new town just outside London. So, And, and uh, I literally had to make two trips in my dad's car to get... It, it's about sort of 45 minutes outside of London. So I had to drive some of the equipment up and then back and then back again. So this is before we'd even done the gig. No one else had a car. My dad lent me his car. Uh, we played the double six. We played to about 20 people, most of our mates. Luckily, my mate said, look, I can take some of the equipment back for you. So we had to do one run. Uh, then there was a big fight. And then we didn't get paid. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was one of those, oh, I want to just go home. Please take me home. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there you go. Double six in Basildon. Now... You put the first album out and you, you have a hit. How does your life start changing? Because, you know, you guys were, you know, that whole time, like bands like Duran Duran and your band, you guys were like, you were sex symbols. I mean, that that's, you know, that's all you can say. You can't say it any other way. It's not like you were the, the guy yeah. in America walking around with the flannel shirt, you know, the tats and they all grunged out. You know, I mean, people found them sexy, but you guys had a certain style and a, and a debonairism, as, you, as I said earlier. What was it like as for you as you started getting popular when you when the, after that first album how did your life change and I'm sure people you must have gotten chased down the street by young girls all the time yeah I mean it, it, in, in some cases I mean you felt like you were in the Beatles um, uh, it, I, I remember once uh, we were in, we were in Australia it was the first time we'd been to Australia and uh, no, it, no we were in Italy actually Italy and the Italians are very passionate and emotional and everything and me and my friend, he came over to spend a couple of days with me. So we snuck out the hotel. Uh, and, then, and then all of a sudden, the fans, there must have been 200, 300 kids outside screaming. 
and we got chased all around the streets of Rome. Uh, and, and luckily, we ended up back in a in a back exit door and stuff, and we got back to the hotel. But it was crazy. I mean, they would pull your hair, they'd rip your jackets. Uh, it was teen mania, and so between you know us and the Duranis and Culture Club and all those kind of bands, we experienced that kind of Beatlemania, if you know. And it was it was kind of weird, but I don't think I don't think any of us ever took it that seriously. Uh, none of us woke up in the morning saying, "Hey, you look so cool. You're a really great." You wake up in the morning the same as everyone, thinking, "Oh my god, you look rough." <laughs> so, so I mean, there's a great uh, video clip from Tower Records in, in LA where we're doing a signing, and uh, and there's all these girls just literally hysterical, crying, and so oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, and, and it's it's kind of weird it's really weird i mean I, I'm, I'm lucky that i've you know got really good family and stuff and, and my mates are still the same mates that um that i had uh, from from when i was at school and I, i'm one of these guys i'll go in the pub i'm just one of the boys you know now who who picked how you guys dressed because you guys, you know, was it were, do, were you guys just very fashion conscious? Did you know what was going on? Because once again, I remember us in the U.S. We're like, hey, we want to dress like those guys, you know. We all wanted Simon LeBon hair, but you know, we didn't. We couldn't get Simon LeBon hair because you know. But we would see the clothes and we go, oh, that looks so cool. And we go to Macy's. You don't find that stuff at Macy's. You know, you find something cool. But but how? Who like who who did you have a stylist or was that just from all of you guys? Well, the biggest influence post-punk, I mean, I loved punk. Punk for me was amazing. But sort of post-punk, um, one of the first looks was a kind of retro electro look, like Captain Scarlet, you know. I don't know if you remember Captain Scarlet, sort of sort of science fiction kind of look, because all the music was very kind of four on the floor, very synth-based. And this was new new technology for us. So there was there was that look, there was the kind of dandy look with the ruffles and everything else, sort of almost like a, you know, 1700s kind of look, <laughs> look like, you know, just real dandies. Then we went through uh, Club for Heroes. It's basically the clubs influenced what we looked like. There was a club called Club for Heroes. Uh, I remember it was on Baker Street. And on that club, we would play like Sinatra music, Tony Bennett, Jack Jones. So we'd all dress like 1940s film stars. Um the Blitz was very much kind of neuromantic, very kind of um, sort of, uh, like I say, futurist. So it was, it was, it was just the clubs influenced the look. Uh, Le Kilt Club uh, influenced the tartan look that we had on to cut a long story short. So that was what influenced it. As time went on, you know, we, we weren't going to clubs so much. We were doing promotion for records and everything else. So we did have help with a, with a couple of stylists, but we were always even as young kids, pretty fashionable, really. I mean, I, you know, punk, I was, I had the, the, the drain pipe trousers and the hair, the spiky hair and everything else. I just think London kids generally, well, kids in the UK generally were into sort of that fashion thing. I suppose if you look at rods, uh, sorry, the mods, the rockers, uh, you know, glam rock and everything else, um, we just sort of followed those trends, really. Now, True becomes number one in the UK, True hits it. You're a popular band, and then you have a smash hit, number one, which yeah. in your own comp- in your own country must be a great feeling because you're like, oh my god, we're top. What was it? What was it like for you guys when that you found out you hit number one? It's a brilliant feeling. 
I, I, anyone who tells you otherwise is a liar. <laughs> it's a, it's one of the, because that, that's what you aim for. I mean, I didn't get in a band or, or be a singer because I wanted to be famous. I love singing. To this day, I absolutely love singing. It's, it's, it's one of the biggest, most pleasurable things that I do. Um, but, but when you have your first number one, especially in your home country, you really think, like, I've been validated. They really do like us. <laughs> it's, and it's a great feeling. And uh, it was number one in the UK for four weeks. Uh, I think it was number four in the States for four weeks and number one in, like I said, 21 countries around the world. So it's just a brilliant moment because all you want to do as a kid, when, when I was watching Top of the Pops, is, you know, you wanted to be a, a singer and a performer. You wanted to be on Top of the Pops. And... Even now, at the age of 60, all I want to do is do music. And when you get that number one record, it sort of means that your future is going to be a bit longer than just six months. So you feel like you can carry on for a long time. I mean, I have to, I gotta be honest with you, Steve. I, I have to pinch myself every now and again thinking, I'm still doing it. I'm still loving it. And I'm doing okay. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a good feeling, it really is. No. The video for True. What we, what, what is, and your whole video careers. What is your take on them? Some people hate them because people don't understand. I've, I've been, I was in the entertainment business, and people don't understand when you go to a TV set or a movie set or a video set, you sit around and you sit around and you sit around, and then you get up yeah. and you're done. You go, I'm done. They go, Oh no, we, we got to go from this angle. What was it like for you guys? Because <laughs> videos were so high end back there. They were very expensive. Uh, you know, we started off because all of a sudden you had uh, sort of, well, MTV, VH1, you had uh, video music in Italy. So we kind of figured from the beginning that things were starting to change. Uh, technology, the way people traveled and everything else. So a video became almost like an ambassador. For, you know, you couldn't just pop over to Australia, for instance, or Japan. So you, you sent the video. That gave, they, they played it on television and then with the advent of uh, video channels, it got played on the video channels. So the video started off fairly cheaply, fairly cheaply. Uh, they were a marketing cost, so the record company bore all the costs of the video. And then all of a sudden, competition time started. I remember seeing Duran Duran and, and looking at, you know, ah, Sri Lanka, Rio, wonderful videos, and I'm thinking... Why aren't we making videos like that? We need this. And those videos cost an absolute fortune. So so then it was like every band wanted to make the best video. And we would say, well, what do you fancy? Oh, no, let's go to New Orleans. We did I'll Fly For You in New Orleans, Mardi Gras. Brilliant. I think we spent 10 days in New Orleans. It cost something, I think, 130, 140 grand. We're going back to 1984. That's a phenomenal amount. That was more than the album cost. So... It was kind of, they were brilliant videos shot on 35 mil. For most of the band, they were pretty boring because, like you say, everyone's sitting around eating sandwiches, having another biscuit or whatever. <laughs> it's kind of, so you don't want to do a long shoot because you'll put on weight. Um, for, as the lead singer, it was pretty okay because I get to be in most frames. But then people have this view that, that when you're filming and everything, it's all wonderful and fluffy and you're in this fame bubble. It's actually pretty tiring some of the time. And, and, and people who do feature films, when they're filming for six weeks, it's, it's, it's pretty tough going. 
It really, really is. So it's not as glamorous as people think. It really isn't. So, well, first of all, how did you end up recording in the Bahamas? You said the Bahamas? Yeah, well, uh, to be honest, I think you got a tax break if you recorded abroad. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, I think that was... And, we'd, and Chris Blackwell, uh, you know, for Island Records and stuff, uh, he was actually the first guy to offer us a deal. And we'd heard that the studio was just... Uh, Compass Point was just amazing. So, know, where should we go? Oh, let's go to the Bahamas. And we save a bit on tax as well. So that was it. So we started record... Uh, we recorded in Munich, uh, Music Love Studios, where... Freddie Mercury and the Queen Boys recorded a lot of the time. Uh, we recorded in Miravel, uh, south of France. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was Johnny Depp. I think Johnny Depp owned Miravel. Uh, it was a chateau, a wine chateau. Uh, but they had a recording studio. So, so yeah, so we, we went abroad quite a lot to record. It was, it was good fun to change the scenery. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge 80s guy. And uh, tell me about when you taped... Do they know it's Christmas this year? I want to because you know that's one of the. There's two yeah. songs. There's two songs, and now it's changed because we have Alexa and stuff like that. But there's two songs that put me in the Christmas mood. It's that and Bruce Springsteen's "Santa Claus is Coming to Town." Probably yeah, because yeah. I'm from New Jersey. But tell me about how that come. Like, how did you get involved in that? And and was it a very long day? Because everyone sort of looks tired in the video when they're getting out. It's early in the morning. Was everyone up late the night before? <laughs> how did you explain that? Right. So. Uh, a couple of the boys from Spandau were down the King's Road, bumped into Bob Geldof, and he said, look, lads, uh, there's a big tragedy happening in Ethiopia. Uh, I, I want to put a record together with Midyear. Uh, and Midyear was from Ultravox, was very instrumental in this. Uh, I, I want to put a, a song together, and I want to get all my mates from the music business to come and do this song. And the guy said, yeah, I'm sure that'll be fine checked it out with the rest of us and we said yeah of course we'll come and help Bob out and do this song we we went uh, we went away I think we were in we were in Germany actually and uh, we were doing a, a Peter's Pop show like a big TV festival the Duranis were there I think Michael Schenker band Iron Maiden um, and we didn't realise that this whole band aid thing had built up momentum the press had got onto it everybody was into it We'd had a big night out with the Duranis uh, the night before we recorded. So we came back to London feeling pretty rough, I have to say. We were all a bit worse for wear. And then all of a sudden someone said, there's, there's like 300 screaming kids out there. There's all the world's press out there. This whole thing had just ballooned. So all of a sudden we've all rushing into the toilet, getting the hairspray out, the makeup and everything else. Uh, we went down to Psalm, Psalm West, Trevor Horn Studio. And we just strolled in and there was everybody there, from George Michael and Phil Collins and Sting, Status Quo, Cool and the Gang. I mean, just everybody. It was a banana-rama. It was just amazing. It really was amazing. And so we all piled into the control room and then the backing track had already been done. And then Bob Gelder said, oh, go on then, Tony. Go on, you go and do the first one. So I was the first one, and actually Bob mentions it in his book, I was the first one down to do my, my two or three lines with every, all your contemporaries watching in the studio. It was like, I was so nervous. And, of course, we've been out the night before till 4 o'clock in the morning, so I was going, <coughs> and I'm just clearing my throat, just clearing my throat, you know. So, uh, but it was amazing. Uh, it was a tremendous day. Um, we, I don't think anybody thought that Band-Aid would lead to Live Aid, would to, 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 to lead to this complete change in the way that people 
view charity around the world and the fact that a bunch of pop stars can make a difference. Uh, and, we, and we did, and, and the legacy still exists to this day. So really proud to be, be involved. What was Live Aid like for you? Because talk, I, I talked to Martin Chambers from Pretenders, and, and they oh, played, yeah. they, I just talked to them, they played in the U.S. You played over in Wembley. What was, what was the feeling? Because in the U.S. there was like, you know, Jack Nicholson and all these people were yeah. just chilling out and hanging around. Tell me about Live Aid and just what it means to you, but what the whole experience was when, it, when you got to this, to Wembley. Well, we'd never played Wembley before. Uh, we, we, I think we had it. Yeah, we helicoptered in. I remember just being incredibly nervous because this was such a big day. We were playing to, I think, in the end, over a billion people around the world, eighty thousand people at Wembley. It's happening in Philly. There's all your heroes there from when you were talking about. There's Bowie, there's McCartney, there's Queen, there's oh, it's it just, it's it's a big day. Um, Princess Diana. Prince Charles, all the dignitaries. So as an artist, I, I can only tell you that I was incredibly nervous. And for some reason, I, I still don't know why, I wore a leather coat, uh, which was double thickness leather coat, in 80 degree heat, and I sweated like a baboon. And <laughs> we, we got through it, but it was amazing. The backstage atmosphere, uh, because people say, well, there was, you know, there was a lot of you know egos going on. There was none of that whatsoever everybody was backstage in the in the Winnebago's uh hard rock cafe were doing all the food all the burgers and the sausages and everything it was just a great atmosphere you know I, I went and see the queen boys freddie and the boys I, I, I good luck lads and status quo were there you know mccartney i mean all your heroes it, it really was an amazing day but it was so amazing that it went by in a second do, do you know what I mean? One of those days where, where, where you're so excited about everything that it just goes, and, and then you have to you have to watch the TV back to realise what you did. Incredible! It was an amazing day, it really was. Now you mentioned you were out partying with the Durannies. Was was there any like uh, ever like some competition between you two? Because you know you both you had that look. You guys were. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, what, I mean, were you? I always wonder because you know some bands like my background when I used to do stand up comedy. When you went on stage, you wanted to blow out the next act after you because that's the only way you moved up. Was yeah, there any competition yeah. between you guys or any other bands of your genre at that time? Or did you all just get along pretty well? Well, apart from drinking competitions, we had <laughs> Frankie Goes to Hollywood are pretty good. The Beastie Boys, actually, we, we did we did them in, uh, I think it was Montreux Festival or something like that. Um, we, to be honest, when bands and musicians get together, uh, we actually really like each other. Uh, musicians like, kind of like hanging out with each other, but don't get three singers in a room talking about how do you feel about your voice today because that's really boring. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, but no, I mean we had a great we had some great nights with the Duranis, um, uh, good good friends, Depeche Mode, great bunch of lads. Frankie goes to Hollywood were always good fun, always good value. Culture Club boys, um, yeah. Whenever we you know Ultravox, whenever we got together, we. Actually, we were all kind of hanging out, drinking in the bars and stuff, and just having a good time. Where we were competitive uh, was uh, certainly in the charts. You know, we wanted to be higher up the charts than any other band, uh, and, and that's the same for every artist and every every band. But um, yeah, uh, no, I, I've never really come across anyone in the music business that was 
I thought, oh, I don't like you very much. You're not my cup of tea. Uh, most people I've met, my heroes, you know, Bowie, Elton John, Rod Stewart, Dave Gilmore, all those amazing, have always been so Freddie Mercury, the Queen boys, have uh, always been so lovely and, and always really, really friendly. So, um, yeah, I'm uh, kind of lucky. It's a good business to be, well, it's, it's a horrible business, but it's a great career. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, now, when you guys came first to the States, was it your first time in the States? Uh, we came to the States, wow, in 1981. It was 1981. We came over with uh, a load of um, fashionistas from London. We did a fashion show. We played, I think it was the Underground Club in New York. I'm certain it was the Underground Club in New York. And uh, it was it was a big thing because all the glitterati of New York were coming out, and uh, uh, it was it was an amazing experience for a, for a twenty one year old kid in New York. Wow, that was just unbelievable. And uh, this is how naive this is how naive I was. So we were in a hotel, and all the Spandau boys were waiting in the lobby, and I went, "Oh, I've just forgotten something. I've got to go to my room." So I got in the lift, and a lovely lovely woman in the lift with a fur coat. And she said, hi, honey. So I said, oh, hi, how, how, how are you? I said, oh, you know, would you like some company? I said, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm fine, thank you. I've got, my friends are waiting for me down downstairs in the lobby. You, honey, you sure you don't want some company? I said, no. I said, it's really nice of you. I said, but honestly, I'm, we're going out and we're going out to... Anyway, as I left the lift, she went, okay, bye-bye, honey. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I went, oh, oh. <laughs> so you, I was 21, so naive. It was, uh, but New York was an amazing experience. That was, it was like being in a film set. In fact, every time I go to New York, I still like, think I'm in a Robert De Niro film. It's brilliant. What What was the difference when from playing overseas and playing in America in crowd wise? Because I know you know I've talked to musicians who say before the internet, if you play in Japan, everyone knows you're when your train's coming. Like they say, it's just amazing. Everyone knows when you show up, they're fanatical and the fans are fanatical. What was it like when you guys did your first tour in the U.S.? I have to say, American audiences are extremely appreciative. If you're good, um, and we were all pretty good musicians, um, the fans were fantastic. Uh, The the, the reviews were good as well. Uh, I've... I've heard of bands not going do, down too well in the states. If you're not good, you, it's, you want to be behind the uh, the old uh, was it the mesh net at the front of the stage, you know. But no, we had a fantastic time. The fans were fantastic. I mean, last time I played the states uh, when we did a proper tour, it was brilliant. I mean, people knew all the words. They knew the words of the new songs. Uh, they were just so enthusiastic. You know, the, the people in America when they come out to a show. They're there to be entertained, and and if you do your job properly, they'll give you every accolade that you want. So, um, brilliant audiences. I mean, it, it's different. Different. Um, I suppose different countries are different. Like you say, Japan. Everyone's there at the airport and stuff. But when you're when we were a younger band, all the kids realised where we were. They had, they had, they knew more information on us than the police or the FBI or you know the MI6. Uh, they just knew where you were, what hotel you were at. So in the very early days of the, the whole teen screen uh, thing, we had fans, as many as 300 fans outside the hotel all the time, which made it very difficult sometimes to go out and see 
you know see see the cities and uh, and see see the the countryside and everything. But um, but we got around it, you know, back of the car, blanket, and all that kind of stuff. Now you know, True was such a big hit. Following up that, what did you guys feel pressure? A lot of pressure from the record company, and plus, you were so young. That's what people forget. You guys were young guys. Like most of us are just getting out of college and getting our yeah. first job. You have a number one hit. You know, you know, you're you're touring. Everyone loves you. What was like? Did you guys like? When did you start getting at each other's throats? Because it's like anything. You know, if you're if you're around someone. And, and, you know, when people don't understand, when you started off touring, you weren't in the buses, you were in little vans. Uh, and, and what, uh, what was it like, you a, know, coming out with a second album? Did you, did you, did you guys feel a lot of pressure? Well, there was, there was a lot of pressure, yeah. I mean, the first album was a great experience to make, obviously. We, we were, you know, here we were. Wow, this is great. We're making a record. We're, we're here. We've arrived. The second album, uh, the... I mean, Instinction was good. Channel Number One was good, um, but I remember when we played the album to the record company, and we played the B side because in those days they had B sides. <laughs> we played the flip side of the album, and you know when you get those moments and no one says anything, <laughs> it's just uh, okay. And it was like we'd all taken a tab of acid or something, because <laughs> it was just. The second side was just quite ethereal and out there and everything, so it wasn't the record. It wasn't the album that the record company were expecting. Making the second album for me was not very pleasurable. I have to say, um, at one point I I lost, just walked out the studio, didn't go back for a week. Um, you know, even contemplated leaving the band on the second album. So. Um, you know, there were there were a lot of pressures. I think there were a lot of pressures on all of us, a lot of pressures on, on Gary in terms of writing. Um, and I think there was a slight desperation in that this second album has got to be, wow, it's got to be, you know, it's got to happen. So difficult, difficult, I think, difficult. But it, it happens with bands. I mean, bands, we had some amazing times together. Don't get me wrong. Brilliant, brilliant times. I, I don't actually know why it went wrong in a way i'm not sure um but people change relationships within people change outside relationships you know in terms of marriages and girlfriends and everything change things just changed and people became different uh, and for me uh the last album that we made heart like a sky i had probably the worst experience i've ever had making an album uh and, and for me i was that's it i'm done what made it so such a bad experience was it because it wasn't things you wanted to sing because once again you're the voice and I know Gary wrote a lot of the material yeah. but is it something that as a singer you know you have a you you have the voice you know no matter what people say you are people see you in the video when we hear true we think of your yeah. voice and we think of the sax solo that's the two things you listen to. What made it such a bad oh, experience? What's, what's, what's such a, made it such a bad experience? Was it just things piling up and then you just couldn't take it? Or was it just tension when you recorded? You know, because I think when you record and you're you're singing, you're doing what you love, you want to feel relaxed. There should not be... You don't want to, <laughs> Absolutely. You don't want to walk on eggshells like, oh my God, yeah. if this happens. What was, what was the bad experience? Why was it so bad? Well, it, it was things just weren't... <sighs> 
our relationship between each other wasn't great. I mean, there's always been a clash, if I'm honest, there's always been a, a bit of a clash in the band between me, myself and Gary. So that, you know, if, if there's going to be an argument in the band, it was always me and him. Two pretty big personalities. Um, uh, and, and sometimes I felt I was just standing there alone having an argument with all of the band. I wasn't totally convinced that the Heart Like a Sky was the, the right album. I felt we needed a fresh injection of ideas. Uh, I also felt that we should uh, we should have recorded it abroad to try and get the camaraderie back in the band again, to, you know, to go away residential so we could have a beer together and be together like we used to. Um, that I was outvoted. That didn't happen. We recorded it in London. It took, I think, 18 months. It cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. And I think it's the worst album that we <laughs> ever made. Um, it, it just, th things, things were changing and it just wasn't very pleasant. And um, there you go. It, it got to the point where I, I, I think Martin and Gary were, were thinking about their film career. Um, then they didn't want to go on tour. And so I was like, well, look, you know, like, let's just get another band and we'll go on tour without you then. <laughs> that caused, you know, that caused uh, a few arguments as well. So, so it just wasn't the, the, the camaraderie that we had um, in, in the early days and even the middle of the band, even late, later on in the band, just wasn't there anymore. And, and music, you, you, you hit on the right point. Music's about fun. It's about being happy. The worst thing you want to do when you're in the studio is be, especially when you're singing, is be tense or, or, or whatever, uh, because you're not going to do the performance. Um, I remember once uh, walking to, uh, it was Air Studios, which was on the fifth floor of uh, a big block on Oxford Circus in the middle of London. And it was a beautiful sunny day. I'll never forget it. It was a beautiful sunny day. And I'm walking along, and the closer I got to the studio, the more stressed out I was feeling. <laughs> And by the time I hit the fifth floor, I walked in. There was all the band in the control room. They said, wow, you look terrible. And I said, yeah, I don't feel so good. And they said, no, you look really, you don't look good. And I said, yeah, I think we're going to go home. They said, yeah, I think you should. And I walked out. I didn't, I didn't, couldn't go in the studio for another week. I just couldn't face it. So it was just, so you don't want to record under those circumstances, but it's, it's sad. It's sad what happens to the band. It happens in relationships. It happens with marriages, partnerships, whatever. You'd sometimes just get to the point where it, it's not very nice anymore. So you knew the breakup was coming in 90. You, you saw yeah. it. I mean, was it, how did it happen? Did you just say, I'm out of here? Or did they say, we don't want you? Or how does, some, how does a breakup happen with a band? Because once again, you were a very popular band, but for you, it was, the best thing probably because you were miserable. And like we said, you don't want to sit there with a knot in your stomach yeah. and go, I don't want to go to the studio, which you love the studio. Yeah. I, we didn't actually have a final break. It was really strange. Um, we just sort of decided that we weren't going to work together for a while. And for a while became nearly 20 years. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, it was just very, very strange times. Um, and Martin and Gary went off and did some film stuff. I then thought, right, okay, well, I better be a solo artist then. You know, oh, this is different. I made a, an album with EMI and uh, I went over to 
Los Angeles and worked with Ron Neverson over there, who's famous for Heart and all the great bands that he's worked with. And we recorded the record plant and other brilliant studios. And it was brilliant. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I, I think it was the wrong album. It was the wrong solo album, definitely. I, I, I call it my REO Speed Foreigner, So West Coast, it was nearly in the sea album. But uh, and don't get me wrong, I like that kind of music. And, and I nearly went through that stage of, I'm going to go and live in LA and, and, and have a whole change. But it, anyway, it just wasn't quite the album that I, I should have made. And at that point, myself and Gary, he was doing The Bodyguard, filming with uh, Costner and um, obviously the late, great, beautiful lady that she was. And... Um, and yeah, and I went down to the film set, and uh, we we kind of got on okay. He came and listened up, listened to my album, and um, but we, I don't know, there just wasn't the connection there. Was it was it hard to play with different musicians when you recorded that solo album? Because once again, they were your mates. You guys have been playing forever, and I know you know yeah. like anything, you adapt. You're a singer, you know. You're a performer. Performers have to adapt, you know. Actors go from movie to movie to movie to different directors. But was it hard because you had, like, I mean, did you sit there and go, oh, that guy doesn't sound like such and such. You know, wait, he's not he's not playing like Gary. What was it like for you playing with new musicians? Well, that, that was quite exciting, actually. I mean, they, they, I, the musicians I had around me were, were very versatile and could pretty much play anything. John Keeble was actually on drums on that first album, which was great to have Johnny Keeble on the drums there. And um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very good at sort of making mates, and uh, it, you know, I, I knew these guys who worked together. You know, we, we were having beers together, so so I kind of, in a sense, formed a new band, um, which didn't last forever. The band I've got now, I call them the Fabulous TH Band. I've been with me for a long, long time now. Even my crew guys, I think some of them been with me twenty, twenty five years. So. So, although I'm a solo artist, I, I, I like to surround myself with, you know, great musicians who are also uh, friends as well. So, in a way, although it was nerve-wracking, I think, I think the most difficult thing was doing all the promotion yourself. Because before, you could always farm it out to one of the other guys in the band. But now it was like, just focused on, on me, Tony Hadley. So, that was kind of difficult. But, um, you know, I've been, I'm always quite an inclusive person. And uh, we'd go out for meals as a band and, and you know it was so not too much changed really so you're building a relationship with these guys and then in 2009 Spandau decides to reform again yes now, now, now I always you know it's it's always different when I see I talk to a lot of musicians who the bands don't get back together and I always think sometimes it's and you you may agree, you may not agree, but you can answer this question. Is it is it like a couple that gets divorced and then gets married again 20 years later? What was it like? What was the instance on how you guys ended up together? Wow. Um, it was... The, the, my mate, I got a, a great friend of mine who's a TV presenter and a singer. He's a very he's a comedian as well, called Shane Ritchie. And we did an interview on Virgin Radio. And he kept pressing. He's a big Spandau fan. He's, a, he's also one of my best friends. And he kept pressing me, come on, Tom, come on, you've got to get the band back together. Come on, come on. And in, in the end, just to shut him up, I said, yeah, all right, we'll get the band back together. And he said, you've heard it exclusive on Virgin Radio? Because we were both working on Virgin Radio. Spandau Ballet getting back together again. Oh, my God. That went global. It On the press, the news, everything that we were getting back together again. 
then and I'm, I'm sort of saying a bit. I was only joking. I didn't really mean it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it was um, it was John Keeble, uh, uh, the drummer of Spandau, that said to me, "Look, the fans really want this tone. Is there any way you think you can do it?" It took six months for me to kind of get my head around the fact that there could be a reunion. Uh, a lot of soul searching. And the final meeting was between uh, actually myself and Gary in a pub in North London, as, you, as, as it always is in England, uh, with John Keeble as the referee in case we, we started hitting each other. <laughs> and we kind of agreed that let's, because we had a terrible court case, awful court case over publishing. We felt that we could do it as long as we didn't bring up the past. It was never going to be the same. Uh, it never is. Uh, I, you know, even when you get back to together with your ex-wife, it's never going to be quite the same. Um, but we felt that we should do it for the sake of the fans and for the sake of our own sanity, in a way, uh, because you carry a lot of angst and, and anger and baggage and stuff. So um, that was the that was the beginning of the 2009-2010 tour after nearly 20 years. When you got back on stage that first night after all those years yeah did it just feel like home to you or did you just or did some of the tensions that you had still stay or when once you hit that stage and heard the crowd were you sitting there going all right this is going to be okay the first show we we did was in dublin actually and i remember well remember backstage we just well literally at the side of the stage and the roar of the crowd and you realized how much People really appreciated the band. It had been, you know, nearly 20 years. And a Dublin crowd is always a brilliant crowd. And I remember thinking, wow, 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 this is really nerve-wracking. And uh, But we went on stage, we played. It was a great show. It was fantastic. And it felt, it felt good. It did feel good. I mean, it's never going to be quite the same because of all the, all the nasty stuff that we went through but it, it it did feel good it did feel good and uh and we had a very successful 2009 2010 tour um so you know and then then we all went off and did our own thing i went off to being solo again which you know i've, I've got a great band and i I've, i owe them I owe them a lot as well so uh but it, it was nice it was nice to dip your toe into spandau again and then go off and do your own thing. So you dip your toe in, you're doing your own thing. And then yeah. now, in 2017, you guys break up again. What happened well, then? Well, we had, we had it, because I always, my, my whole thing about it was, you know, the Phil Collins Genesis. Phil Collins does his own thing. Then they get back together with Genesis or, or Brian Ferry and Roxy Music. That, that, for me, would have been a perfect way of moving forward. So we went back to doing our own solo stuff, acting, music, whatever. Uh, then in 2014, uh, we started to talk about getting back together again for another tour, but we were talking about making a documentary. Uh, we made a documentary called Soul, Soul Boys of the Western World. Yeah. Really, waltz and all, there wasn't much that we didn't touch on. Pretty painful to watch, actually, for me. I, I can't watch it anymore. Um, and and so we got back together again in 2014-2015. We toured and promoted the film for a year and a half. Um, I think I think the other guys in the band felt that this was going to be the new beginning of the band and that we would carry on. And 
you know, I've been a solo artist for, for m many more years than I was in Spanner Valley for. And I said, look, guys, we've done a year and a half. I've done everything you wanted me to do, but I've got an album to finish, uh, uh, Talking to the Moon. I've got, a I've got my band as well, and, and I've got some stuff, commitments that I'm committed to. And um, so that went on for a while, and, uh, and then things just got really nasty. Um, and I was forced into a position, and I've never said publicly why, and I'm not going to say now, but they forced me into a position uh, whereby I had no option but to, to resign from the band. It wasn't, it wasn't something I wanted to do. It, what they did was not very pleasant. Uh, it affected you know, my family, me, people around me. Um, and I just said, I can't do this anymore. So I resigned and quit from the band, and that was the end of that. Why is the documentary so painful for you to watch? Well, because you can see, it's, it's really weird, right? You can see the, the disintegration of the band before we broke up quite a while before. You can see the tensions because George Henkin, who was the director, she's she's absolutely lovely, lovely lady. She said, if I'm going to do this film, you've got to let me be honest. And yeah, be as honest as you want. I don't care, you know. And she was, and she was allowed sort of carte blanche to, to edit and, and, and use the footage in the way she felt reflected the true story but but there were moments where you could feel the tension in the room i mean you know if you've ever seen uh, uh you know some of it was spinal tap i suppose but uh uh it, it was it was pr pretty pretty t hard to watch and there were people in there that are no longer with me my dad was in there my granddad in there and stuff like that so there were personal uh, people that are no longer with us and it just became harder and harder to, to watch um, I mean if you've ever seen have you ever seen Metallica the yeah. documentary you know where at one point he's just sitting with his head in his hands <laughs> there were moments like that uh, watching that film there really were but um, but at least it was honest now I gotta ask you I, I read because I, I had your uh, your management uh, sent me a list of different things. Uh, yeah, yeah. What was it like meeting the Queen and going to Buckingham Palace? I mean, that was... I know an actor who met at the presidential dinner. His girlfriend works for CNN. And he met yeah. Obama. And he said it was very quick. Like, you go up, how are you doing, shake? And you go, what was it like meeting the Queen? And when you got invited, did they, like, send an invitation? Or did they call you? Or how does that work? Yeah, well, I've I got several charities that... Um... I, I work for and, and as a charity Shooting Star uh, Children's Chase hospices were uh, Shooting Star Chase were invited to Buckingham Palace along with other charities so there's a huge huge room like a big ballroom there must have been 300 people in it now the next morning we were due to do breakfast TV in, in, uh, in Germany so I had a car waiting for me outside the gates of Buckingham Palace and I was one of the people that was, well, you know, someone came up to me and said, uh, oh, excuse me, can you come to this room, please? You're, I'm one of the special people. I'm going to meet the Queen. And, um, uh, and uh, the Countess of Wessex is our uh, royal patron of the charity. And she's absolutely lovely, lovely lady. And so she had arranged that I could meet the Queen with about, uh, there's about 25, 30 other dignitaries um, and people from show business and stuff. And it was so nerve-wracking. So, and she was absolutely delightful and, and, and just 
being the queen is, is something special. It really is. And uh, what a lovely lady. Absolutely lady. And, and, and there's a picture of me meeting the queen. And it's like, wow. You know, everyone was pretty proud. And my mum and my wife, Ali, and all the kids were really proud of that moment. And then literally met the queen, had a couple of classes of, of poo, and shot down in the car and drove overnight to Germany, had about an hour's sleep and did breakfast TV with Spandau the next morning. But I was not going to miss meeting the queen. A Majesty the Queen, no way in a million years. How, how did you get so involved in charities? Because I always, you know, it's always such a great thing when when a celebrity or a music star, you know, gets involved in charity because you add so much to the charity. My my wife had done a volunteer work with Make-A-Wish, and, this, and when we lived in L.A., yeah. the celebrities that got involved, it was amazing and just how great they were and how, how it shows a different side of what people sometimes think of a celebrity or whatever. How did you get so involved in charities? I got involved quite early on, really. I mean, I think most people from the music business, um, uh, you know, the world of acting, you know, you try and do what you can because we have a, you know, we have a pretty privileged life. I mean, you know, I'm still making music after 40 years. It was a dream. I was a kid watching Top of the Pops. I still get paid for what was a, was a dream. Uh, and if you can do a little bit here and there, sing a few songs... Uh, for a charity, raise a few quid, then that's, you know, that's kind of a good thing to do. So that's why I, I, I do, and I get asked to do lots of charitable things. Shooting Stars is an amazing children's hospice, Huntington's Disease Association, uh, Low Syndrome. They're, they're, you know, I've done UK Cancer Trust, Teenage Cancer uh, Trust as well. And so you just do what you can, when you can. And like I say, if that helps to raise a few, few pounds, then uh, or dollars, then that's a that's a good thing. It's just your time. Um, so it's twenty twenty one. You have the you have a show coming up, the leads, and hopefully yeah. you know U.S. in in the U.S. We're actually they're starting to plan concerts again. Things are opening up. <sighs> um, what can people expect to see when you tour now? Are they going to see, you know, some of your solo stuff, Spandau stuff? What what can, like, someone expect? And I'm sure you play True, because you have to say play oh. True, because people will be like, well, you didn't play True. What's wrong with them? <laughs> what, what, are people, what are people expect? Well, the thing is, there are certain songs that you have to play. I mean, the question I get asked a lot, I mean, how many, if I had a pound for every time I've sung True, you know, wow. I mean, I, I've, I've sung True, Gold, Through the Barricades, Only When You Leave, Lifeline. I've sung them thousands, thousands, thousands of times. And people say to me, do you ever get bored of singing them? And the answer to that is no, I don't. Because every audience is a different audience. And when you sing their, those songs and you see people's faces, whether they may sometimes hug, kiss each other, or they're dancing, they're jumping up and down, they're singing along to every word, you realise that you've created a moment. And all songs are memories and they create you know, memories and moments in people's lives. So I never, I never always sing the hits. Uh, and, you know, can you imagine if I didn't sing True and Gold? I'd be shot. <laughs> it's like, and I've seen really big artists, really well-known artists say, hey, I'm not going to do uh, any of my hits. I'm going to do my new, new album. Mate, that is a recipe for disaster. Uh, and, and I think it's really selfish as well. I really, really do. So what I love to do, I, do, I don't want to be a tribute to myself. Uh, 
But what what I love to do is uh, Talking to the Moon was my last album. I'm working on the new album. Obvious was released in the summer. Big fun, happy song. Uh, you can see it on YouTube. Um, and um, so I love to do. There's a couple of the hits. Oh, by the way, check out this new song. I've written this new song. I really hope you like it. And so the reaction has been in festivals and shows that we've done. People have really been appreciative of the fact that I've done all the stuff they love. And I do I always throw in a couple of covers, always do a Queen number, for instance, because I love Freddie and Queen. I'm just a mad fan. And uh, But it's good to do a couple of new songs, too. And um, and now some of the newer songs that got playlisted on BBC Radio 2 and all the stations, the kids come along and now they sing along to the new songs as well, which is even better. So I, I count myself as being, I'm a very lucky bloke that I'm still doing what I love. Um, I'm still enjoying music, still get, I still get excited, as you can probably tell. Uh, and I cannot wait. Me and my band, we have a Zoom every week, my band and my crew, have a Zoom every Tuesday night. We have a beer together. And we are so excited about getting back uh, together. Will you be nervous when you get on stage again, live in front of a crowd? Yeah. I, know, I know it's natural to you. You've been doing it for years. But that first time back after having a layoff, yeah. you sit there and go, I might forget the words. What do you think will happen? Oh, that, that's my worst fear. Because the first time I ever sang in, sang in public, I did Lady Madonna. I was, I was 14 or 15 in front of 400 people and halfway through I forgot the words. So that has always haunted me. There have been moments that I, I once forgot the second verse of Gold, but luckily they knew the words, which was great. Uh, so that, that's one of the things that haunts me. I, I'll be honest with you, I get nervous before every show, every single show, even though I've sung a million times and I've done big concerts, small concerts, uh, stadium concerts. I get nervous every single time. and uh, But I think it's a good thing because, you know, especially when you're on the road, you're a bit tired, you maybe feeling a bit, you know, you're a bit coldy or whatever. That adrenaline just before you go you go on stage, that gets you through it every time. So um, I will be nervous, but I'll be, I think I'm going to be more excited than I will be nervous. So if I forget the words... Please fill them in for me. <laughs> That's awesome. I want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time today. Now, you're on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? Oh, dear. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Just, just Google. Um, people. I think it's at Tony oh Hadley. I'm terrible because I, I, I'm not the most social media savvy, but I, I do I only do nice things on Twitter, I have to say. Right, my Twitter is... Uh, oh, dear. Here we go. Here we go. It's at, at the Tony Hadley at the Tony Hadley on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and Instagram. By the way, I was going to say, um, thanks for the great interview, by the way, really good. And we desperately want to come back to the States. And, and if the uh, US customs people are listening, please give us back a year that we've lost because of COVID on our visas. <laughs> so, but what's it been like? Right. Could you talk about Twitter? Uh, um, when D- Donald Trump was president, it was like you every single day. There was Twitter, 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 Twitter. I, you know what? I, I don't, I don't pay attention to social media anymore. In those cases, I, you know, yeah. On my on my Facebook, I just I post about my show. I post what I yeah. eat. I eat cheap. I post pictures of me and my beautiful wife, and I tell yeah. jokes. And it, it's been, you know, it's been crazy, and it's it's going to take a while to get back, but we will find out. But I mean, it's something that. It's the, our country's split. Do you think Biden's going to be a good president? 
You know, I don't know. I mean, you know, I always say for someone like me, and I don't want to sound, you know, trite or whatever, but I, I grew yeah, up in a yeah. nice neighborhood. I'm a white guy in America. I've yeah. always been okay, no matter who the president was. If something bad happened to me, it was because I screwed up. Maybe I drank a beer and said something to the wrong person. Yeah. But yeah. it's just, we're going to see, you know, it's learning. It's just a matter of, the whole thing America's missing right now is unity. And, 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 and for me, the media focuses too much on the far left and the far right. But there's so many people yeah. like me who are down the middle. You know, we're, we're, you know, as I say, you know, when I was younger, I was a conservative liberal. Now I think I may be more of a liberal conservative. You know, it's just a thing. So hopefully, hopefully when, when you come to America, everything will be making sense and we'll be good to go. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And, and listen, thanks very much for the interview, Steve. Really good, mate. Thank you. And uh, love Philadelphia. That's hold, a cool place. Hold Home on one second. Home of Holland Oats and great music. Hold on one Brilliant. second before I close the show. I want to talk to you real quick. Uh, so, people, please check out Tony. Go to at the Tony Hadley on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk on Twitter. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 840 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Go listen to Tony's solo stuff. Go listen to Spandau Ballet. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. And don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys (laughs) next time.